Um, so this morning we're going to start a new series that I've been excited about. We've been looking forward to it for a while called Happy. And, you know, I was thinking a lot about happiness this week. And, like, we live in a culture that is kind of happy-obsessed, you know? Like, every, everybody wants to be happy. It's one of those emotions that, like, we all want to feel, right? Like, now, maybe sometimes the circumstances of our life make us not feel that way, but we all look at it and we go, I would love to be happy, right? Or maybe even more than that, we go, I deserve to be happy, you know, we kind of have this entitled position with it at times. And so what we do is we try a lot of different things to try to attain that happiness. And we go, what's going to make me happy? And maybe one of the things that we think is going to make us happy is this. Cash money, right? Like if I could just have money, if I could have plenty of money and I didn't have to worry about that in my life, then I would finally be happy, right? It's interesting, as an aside, it's interesting um, how many people, if you've ever heard like stories of lottery winners, how many of them go, my life was a lot better before I won the lottery, right? So it's so like money, we might look at it and go, man, that's going to make me happy. And we go, nah, it really doesn't. You know, you get some and you're like, I'm still not happy because of the money. And so maybe we do other things and we go, well, maybe if I could just be successful, then I'd be happy. You know, if I could, if other people would recognize my accomplishments and my gifts and my skills and they would give me an award or they would give me a title and we go, man, that would, then I would finally be happy. Or maybe we go, if I could just find true love then I'd be happy. If I could find my soulmate, the person I'm going to spend the rest of my life with, then I would have no problems because that's what love is all about, right? We have no problems when we love somebody. You go, no, that's not right. Like, that's not reality. Or, or maybe we go, you know what? The key to happiness is just, like, don't take life too seriously. You know, laugh a lot, right? Like this baby. Every time I look at that picture, I just want to smile. I think it's like, like, I wonder what that baby is thinking. That's like the greatest faith. But we go, you know, if I just laugh through life and I don't take things too seriously, then I'll finally be happy. You know, I don't know. Or we go, if I could just find inner peace, you know, if I could block out, people are so hard, life is so hard, if I could just block it out and go be by myself and meditate, man, then I could be happy. Or we go, you know, if I could just have the right food, like food makes me happy. I'm one of those guys like food makes me happy. Marsha makes fun of me because if I have like a rotten day, I come home, I'll be like, I need some ice cream, you know, or a hamburger or a pizza like food or drink can make us happy. And so restaurants have things like happy hour where they have half price appetizers, which make me happy, right? Or McDonald's has things like a happy meal that kids go, oh, I'm so happy because inside there's a little toy, right? I always think, like, why do my kids get so excited to get a happy, they used to, to get a happy meal with a little plastic toy that they would never pick out at a store, but because it's in a meal of food, they're like, this makes me so excited. And so we have like all of these, you know, ways that we try to make ourselves happy. And sometimes we attain a little bit of happiness. We experience a little bit of happiness. And when we do, we're like, I need to express it now. You know, I'm so happy. I have to find ways to let this happiness out. And so when we're texting people, we go, we have smiley face, happy emojis, right? Or maybe uh, we're so happy that we want to sing a song about it, right? Like, I'm so happy. Or maybe um, you have your own little happy dance, right, that you do. Maybe it looks something like that. Maybe it doesn't, right? Or maybe you're like Homer Simpson, like the way that you get happy, you just want to yell and go, woohoo! Like we have all these different kinds of ways to express our happiness. But if we're honest, many times happiness is elusive. 
for us, right? And it's kind of like holding on to sand and so you, know, I, you grab hold of it and you're like, I'm happy. And then the next thing you know, your hand is empty. I was reading about uh, some, some different research or studies, I guess, they did on happiness. In 2017, Fortune magazine did a study um, on like, I think they called it their World Happiness Report. And they looked at like the different levels, I don't know, of happiness of different countries around the world. And what they found about the United States is that we are the least happy we've ever been. Like as a whole, collectively, we are the least happy. And so we're not even in the top 10 anymore in terms of happiness by country. And, and you look at our world and you're like, man, we have lots of reason to be happy, right? Like we live in a country with so many blessings and freedoms and opportunities. Like we have so much reason to be happy. And yet so many people aren't. Another study, um, a Harris poll in 2017, uh, determined that um, only one in three people self-described as being happy. One, 33%, one in three people said, yes, I'm happy. Two out of three people said, no, I'm not happy. Uh, they, they, another organization, CNBC and uh, Wallet Hub, did a study on the happiest states in the Union, in the United States. And so the happiest, I thought this was interesting, the happiest states in order, number one is Minnesota. That surprised me. It's like always cold in Minnesota, you know? Maybe it's beautiful lakes, I don't know. Utah, I think it's a beautiful place. Hawaii, California, Nebraska. Do you know where Ohio ranks in there? 36. It's a little depressing, isn't it? You wanna be even more depressed? You know what Michigan ranks? 29. How terrible is that, right? I, I did a, um, a little Google search, and what, I, and what I typed in was how to be, and then a space, how to be a space. And the, the things that came up were this. The second thing that came up, it's hard to read back there, is happy. The second most thing that people search for through Google is how to be happy. Now, the third thing is Latin lover, so I don't really know what that tells us about our culture, but, you know, whatever. But, like, we're, we're so we're, some of you are like, actually, I did search that earlier. No. But we're a culture that is, like, longing for happiness, right? Like, we're searching for happiness. And I think it's interesting. Um, so the first part of the first sermon that we have recorded in the first book of the Bible of Jesus um, is all about happiness. So the first sermon that we have recorded in the New Testament that Jesus preached, the very first thing that he talked about was happiness. And so it's at the beginning of a sermon called the Sermon on the Mount. So this is Jesus's most famous sermon uh, in the Bible. And so it's the, the, the whole thing is Matthew 5 through 7. And uh, actually, if you've got a Bible, I'd love for you to turn there right now, grab it, or maybe a phone. We have a Grace Church app. It's got a little Bible part on it as well. I think it helps to see it in front of you, we'll throw it up on the screen as well, but um, Matthew chapter five is where we're gonna be. And so here's, here's what we're gonna do um, over the next couple months actually, is we're gonna, we're gonna spend a lot of time at the beginning of Matthew chapter five. It's something, it's a little section of scripture called the Beatitudes, I'll explain what that is here in a second. But it's a little section of scripture, 12, 11, 12, 13 verses, something like that that um, Jesus talks about happiness with. And what we're gonna do is we're gonna take, we're gonna kind of dig in deeply um, into little, little parts of that. So basically a verse a week, we're gonna do a little bit more than that today, but a verse a week, and we're gonna talk about what Jesus says are some of the keys to happiness and maybe how 
Jesus defines and describes happiness is different than how we might define and describe happiness. So hopefully you're in Matthew chapter 5. Um, if you're in chapter 5, flip one page to the left to chapter 4, because chapter 4 is an important chapter to, to understand what's happening before we get into chapter 5. So whenever we're reading the Bible, sometimes, sometimes maybe we can read the Bible and we can go, this is how I'm going to choose what to read today. And we go, eh, stop. Jeremiah 14, and we just pick up and we start reading. And maybe sometimes that's okay, I don't know. But understanding the context is really important. Like to understand what's happening when we dive into a place in Scripture is important. And so to know the context, so we're going to jump into chapter 5, but to know the context for chapter 5, chapter 4 is big. And so in chapter 4, um, we get to see who Jesus is preaching to. Okay, so this is first sermon. Chapter 4 tells us who he's preaching to in this sermon. So here, here it is. This is the, the very end of chapter 4. Ready? Jesus went throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness among the people. News about him spread all over Syria, and people brought to him, here it is, people brought to him all who were ill with various diseases, those suffering severe pain, the demon-possessed, those having seizures, and the paralyzed, and he healed them. Large crowds then gathered, large crowds from Galilee, the Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and the region across the Jordan followed him. And so, why do I show you that? Well, who's Jesus talking to? Jesus is talking to, like, the people that are surrounding him are the sick. They're, they're the people that would have been perceived back then as crazy, right? They're the people that are messed up, that are hurting, they're the marginalized. Who isn't Jesus specifically talking to in this passage? Well, he's not talking to the rich. Those are that, they weren't in the crowd. The marginalized, I'm sorry, the powerful, the brilliant, the ones that were the most respected, that's actually not who Jesus is talking about. His audience in this are broken people that wanted to be fixed. His audience are people that are looking for happiness because their life is not in a very happy place right now. And I think it's important for us to, um, to know that because maybe this morning you come here and you're like, my life's messed up too, you know? I come here and I'm kind of broken, you know? And I want to be fixed. And I look at happiness and I think, I don't feel it right now. I don't have it right now, but I want it. I just don't know how to get it. And so maybe if that's you this morning, um, what Jesus has to say to us, um, he has to say to you. Okay, so uh, flip over then to chapter five, and here's what I want to do. I just I want to read all eight of the beatitudes. So we're gonna we're gonna um, spend our time mostly in the first beatitude here, but we're gonna read all eight of these because I want you to just see it. I want you to see it as a whole, kind of collectively, what Jesus talks about here. Um, we'll we'll t again talk more about the first one, but here it is. So when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and he sat down. His disciples came to him and he began to teach them. So this is what he said. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. 
Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So as you read that, um, maybe one, so hopefully just like seeing it collectively is helpful, kind of uh, helps us understand Jesus' heart in this. You read that and you go, wow, that's, that's like different than maybe what our culture would say you're blessed with, right? You are blessed when you experience these things. So, so Jesus, maybe you've seen this, Jesus uses that word blessed nine different times in this passage, nine different times, and, so, and that's, which is actually why it's called the Beatitudes. So the Beatitudes, maybe in your Bible you have a little heading there that says the Beatitudes. What the Beatitudes means, it's actually a, a Latin word for blessing, okay? And so what it means is blessings. Beatitude means utterly blessed, right? Like extremely blessed, extremely blissful. And so that word in our Bibles, blessed, um, in, the, in the original word, it was originally written in Greek. We translate it into English. That original word is makarios, makarios. And what it means is blessed. Maybe in your Bible, it might say happy, right? That's why we call this series happy. Happy are the poor in spirit. Happy are those who mourn, right? So it can mean blessed. It can mean happy. It can mean blissful. It could mean favorable. Now, I don't know about you, like when you hear that and you read through this list of things that Jesus talks about, you may respond like I do, where you go, I don't know, like, I, those things don't really make me happy, a lot of those things. Some of them do, some of them make sense. Some of those things like don't make me feel good, like being poor in spirit, like that doesn't conjure up happy feelings inside of me. Being persecuted, that doesn't sound like a very happy thing or a very blessed thing. Mourning, that doesn't sound like a very happy or blessed thing. But it's interesting, that word makarios, the root of that word is makar. And what kar means, makar is all about happiness and blessedness, but here's the thing, it's independent of one's circumstances. So it's a happiness or a blessedness that's independent of one's circumstances. And so it's saying that despite what might be tough circumstances, like I find myself mourning, I find myself persecuted, despite what might be tough circumstances, I'm actually blessed. Now, again, I don't know about you, but I hear that and I'm like, okay, but I don't feel blessed. I don't feel happy when I'm experiencing those things. Well, I want to be clear here. Jesus uses that word blessed or makarios when he does it. He's not really talking about how we might feel in the moment. It's important for us to get as we, as we go through that list. When he's saying blessed are those who mourn or happy are those who mourn, he's not saying when you're mourning, you should be ha 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 happy, right? Like that's not what he's talking about. In fact, I don't think that's uh, happiness in that sort of way is what we should be pursuing anyway. I think that's like short-sighted of us because that kind of happiness is really circumstantial, right? So like I'm happy when um, I wake up in the morning and it's sunny and I'm like, oh, it's going to be a good day. I'm happy when I open my Happy Meal and I have a little toy inside, right? Like I'm happy because of that. Those are circumstantial reasons. But the blessing that Jesus is talking about here is a promised blessing. It's a promised happiness that might not feel good in the short term, but it's lasting and it's independent of circumstances and it's a far more meaningful 
happiness. It's like when we choose these, these kind of attitudes that Jesus talks about here, and sometimes we choose them, sometimes they choose us, right? Like sometimes, like no one chooses mourning. Mourning happens because something hard happens in our lives. But some of those things we choose, like being pure in heart, for example. When we choose them or they choose us, like when, when, when we're in the midst of all of that, Jesus' promise is one day, maybe not right now, but one day you're going to experience blessing and happiness through this, through this endeavor. It's a, it's a promise for something in the future. Doesn't necessarily mean we immediately experience it. So, so I think this will get a little more clear as we start to dig into each of these um, one by one. So I want to spend the rest of our time looking at the first one here. So, so look at uh, verse 3, Matthew 5, 3. So this is what it says. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. You read that at first. Like imagine if you were sitting there listening. Like, so, so when Jesus gives this sermon, it says he goes up on the side of a mountain. He goes up a mountain a little bit. And he teaches this group of people, which, by the way, was like, they, they didn't have this back then. There was no amplification. So the way that you got people to hear you is you were elevated above them, and so your voice carried, right? So imagine Jesus is kind of elevated above you, and you're in this crowd of people, and he says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. I, like, I don't know about you, but I would hear that, and I would go, he messed up. He, he said poor in spirit. He meant rich in spirit, right? Like, Jesus made a mistake. Jesus didn't make a mistake. When he said, blessed are the poor in spirit, he meant it. That, that word poor uh, is a really interesting word. So in the original language, in the Greek, and the Bible, was, the New Testament was written in the Greek, in the original language, there were two words that they used for poor back then. One of them is penance, penance. So we have that word in the English language as well. But the penance in the Greek were the working poor. So these are the people that had jobs, they worked a lot, but they didn't get paid very much, and so they were poor. They were just barely scraping by, right? They had a little bit, but not much. That's the working poor, that's penance. That's actually not the word that Jesus uses here. Jesus uses the other word for poor. The other word for poor is patokas, patokas. And what that word meant is beggars, right? And so these are the ones that didn't have a job. They didn't have much of any money. They didn't have much of any possessions. Here's, here's what they were. They were completely dependent on the generosity of others for survival. This is the Patokas. And so Jesus says, so it's like, I don't know what you think when you hear that. I go, huh, like that's, that's really interesting. It's interesting that Jesus doesn't say, blessed are the working poor. Blessed are the ones that are poor, but they're really working at it. He says, essentially he says, blessed are the spiritual beggars. Right? Blessed are the spiritual beggars who ain't got nothing of their own. Who don't bring anything to the table. Think, think deeply about that term poor in spirit. Like, what do you think Jesus meant like, when he was saying that? Because he didn't just use the word poor. So we're in the book of Matthew. In the, the first part of our New Testament, we have four books that kind of tell the same story from four different perspectives. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the four Gospels. And so they tell the story of the life and death and resurrection of Jesus. So we're in Matthew. The third book, Luke, also tells this, the same story. It, it kind of gives um, a, a summation of Jesus' sermon here. 
And in that one, it's a little bit more succinct. And in that one, it says, Jesus said, blessed are the poor. He doesn't add in spirit there. But Matthew gives us like a more expanded version. So he's not talking just about people that were physically poor. Blessed are you when you're physically poor, when you don't have any money. In that case, college students would be like the most blessed people on the planet, right? Because they're always poor. That's not what he's talking about here. He adds that word, that little caveat, in spirit. So you think about that, you're like, what does Jesus mean by poor in spirit. Like, what, what does he mean to be spiritually bankrupt? How, how are we blessed when we recognize we're spiritual beggars? Well, it means, like, for me to be happy, for me to be blessed, I need to recognize, this is so important, I need to recognize that I am utterly spiritually destitute. Utterly spiritually destitute, like absolute spiritual poverty. Like I bring nothing to the table that makes me spiritually rich or spiritually wealthy or spiritually affluent. I am 100% dependent on the generosity of God, 100%. And he says, when I get that, like when I understand that I am a spiritual beggar before God, then I'm happy and I'm blessed. So I would say it this way. This is how I wrote it down. When I finally recognize that I'm a spiritual beggar, I find happiness. When I finally recognize that I'm a spiritual beggar, I find happiness, which begs a question for us, pun intended. Do you yet recognize that you're a spiritual beggar? Like in your own life. Don't answer out loud. Just think in the quietness of your heart. Not, not the spiritual working poor where you go, well, I'm doing a lot. I'm trying really, really hard. And I bring a little bit to the table. Not much, but I bring a little bit to the table. Not that. But do you recognize yet that you are a spiritual beggar? That you are spiritually bankrupt? That before God, we really bring nothing. 100% completely dependent on the generosity of God. Another time, back in that um, Gospel of Luke, uh, Jesus tells a story, tells a parable, where he gives us kind of this word picture of what it looks like to be a spiritual beggar. And so he compares two people in this story, and I, I want to read it to you. I think it gives us maybe a, a clearer picture of what it looks like in our lives to be a spiritual beggar. So it's in Luke 18. You could just look on the screen if you want. So this is what it says. To some who are confident in their own righteousness... And looked down on everyone else, Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and he prayed, God, I thank you that I am not like other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and I give a tenth of all I get. <laughs> right? But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but he beat his breast and he said, God, have mercy on me, I'm a sinner. Jesus says, I tell you the truth, or I tell you that this man, rather than the other, the tax collector, rather than the Pharisee, went home justified before God. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. So you hear that story, which one of those two guys you think was poor in spirit? Which one of those two guys is the spiritual beggar? Well, that's easy. It's the, it's the tax collector, right? It's interesting. 
uh, the tax collector very likely would have been the one who um, was physically rich, who was physically more wealthy, like monetarily more wealthy. Uh, it's part of the reason that uh, the, the Jews didn't like the tax collectors. They worked for the enemy. They worked for Rome. But they would, like, bribe people and take little kickbacks here and there. And so many times they acquired a lot of money. So almost definitely the tax collector would have been the one who was earth on earth, like or physically, monetarily rich in this. But it says that he was spiritually poor, right? Isn't that interesting? And the Pharisee, this is, this is fascinating to me, the Pharisee would have 100% lived a more righteous life than the tax collector. Like, no doubt about it. His, he would have done way more good in his life, way less bad in his life. He would have been more religious. He would have prayed more. He would have uh, fasted more. He would have given more. Here's the problem. He knew it, right? He knew it. He was prideful, and he thought that he was spiritually rich. He thought that he was spiritually affluent. He thought that he was spiritually well off. He thought, man, God must be pretty impressed with me, right? But he wasn't because that's not how God works. Now, we should say this. Certainly God approved of those actions, right? Like, like the fasting and the praying and the giving. Certainly God approved of those things. Those are good things. They just aren't the things that make us acceptable to God, they aren't the things that make us righteous before God. See, they, those things, doing those things, were at the top of the Pharisee's value system on what made him acceptable to God. Well, I'd be acceptable to God if I do this, and I do this, and I do this, and I don't do that. I stay away from this. I shun this. But I do this, and I, that's what's going to make me right with God. They're at the top of his value system. But in God's value system, what makes us righteous and acceptable to him, our actions are actually really low on the list. Which, which sounds weird because we're like, well, doesn't God care about our actions? Yes, God cares about our actions. Those things are very important to him. But our actions are not what make us righteous before him, right? They're actually just the result of what's happening inside of our heart. Why do I do the things that I do? Well, because of what I feel inside of my heart, right? Our actions are the result of what happens inside of our heart. And our heart is what's most important to God. And you look at these two guys in Jesus' parable and you're like, they have two very different hearts, right? One of them, the tax collector, had a heart that was humble. He had a heart that was contrite. He had a heart that was poor, spiritually poor, and completely dependent on the generosity of God, right? The other guy, the Pharisee, had a heart that was prideful, he had a heart that was self-sufficient, that was spiritually rich, that was completely without need of the generosity of God. Isn't that interesting? It, it, like, you know, it, here's what it makes me think of. So this helped me like, wrestle with this stuff. So let me, let, me, let me give you a scenario that maybe might help make this make a little bit more sense for us. So imagine two really, really poor guys having a conversation with Bill Gates. Okay, you guys know who Bill Gates is? principal founder of Microsoft, uh, between he and Jeff Bezos, the founder of Amazon, they kind of go back and forth between who is the wealthiest man on the planet. Like $91 billion wealthy. That's what Bill Gates has. So imagine Bill, so, so super wealthy, one of the wealthiest men on the planet. He's also one of the most generous men on the planet. I don't know if you knew that. He and, uh, I read about this this week, I didn't know this. He and some of the other super billionaires made a pact together that before they died, they were going to give away over half of their income, over half of their 
uh, wealth. Isn't that interesting? So I mean, they still have billions of dollars, right? But they're giving away billions of dollars. So imagine two really, really poor guys talking to him. So both of these guys would have been dirt poor. Like neither of them would have had two pennies to rub together. So, so imagine no job, dirty, stinky, unkept hair, bad breath, holes in their clothes. Like imagine, what, like imagine these guys having a conversation, talking to Bill Gates, net worth $91 billion, okay? So imagine the first guy coming up to him and he's like, Bill, hey buddy, how you doing, man? So good to see you. How's the computer business going? I hope it's going great, all right. Doing great here. I am doing so well in my life. By the way, Bill, you know, you and I are really so much alike, you know? Like, we, we have so much in common. I'm just like you. We should hang out more, you know? Like, maybe go to your country club and, you know, I'll buy a little drink. We'll just sit down and we'll talk you and me and the other rich people. We're so much alike. How do you think Bill Gates would respond to that? Hey, like, buddy. <laughs> What do, you, what do you mean? We're so much alike. You, you have no job. I work all the time. You're dirty and you're stinky and you have unkept hair and your breath is like really bad. You have holes in your clothes. You don't have two pennies to rub together. How, like how could you even get into my country club? Let alone buy me a drink and have a drink with me. Like we're really nothing alike. And the guy's like, well, you know, and I don't have money, I don't have clothes, I don't have the ability to take a shower, but like, you know what I got? I have this old newspaper collection that is massive, like stacks and stacks and stacks of old Akron Beacon journals. Yeah, Akron Beacon journals, dating all the way back to like the early 2000s. Do you have any idea how much that's worth? Like, I have been collecting this for so long. You and I, like, we're very much the same. And you're going to be like, buddy, those are, those are worthless. Like, 15-year-old Akinbricken journals. Like, what, what would we do with that? Like, you couldn't, like, if you sold all of those, you couldn't buy a Coke at my country club. Like, I'm sorry, but what you valued in life is wrong. Like, you valued the wrong things. Right? Now imagine the other really, really poor guy. And he says, Mr. Gates, I have nothing. No money, no wealth. I don't even have any food and water. And I don't even have a way to make things better. And, and if I'm honest, some of the reasons that my life is the way that it is is because of some of the choices I've made. I am messed up. You and I are so different. But I am so thirsty right now. I am so thirsty. Do you, do you think that you might just be able to buy me a bottle of water? So thirsty. I know that I don't deserve it. And, and I have no way of ever paying you back. I'm just so thirsty. And Bill Gates goes, I can see you're thirsty. And I'll give you a bottle of water. Don't, don't worry about paying me. In fact, I'll do you one better. If, if you'll trust me, if you'll keep coming back to me day after day after day, not only will I give you all the water that you need, but I'll give you new clothes, brand new wardrobe. You'll look good. 
I'll give you a house with multiple bathrooms in it, multiple showers in it. You can get cleaned up anytime that you want. I'll give you a job that's meaningful and it'll provide for every one of your needs. I'll even give you an inheritance that one day you're going to get in the future. All you have to do is trust me. Like all you have to do is keep coming back to me and trust that I'll give these things to you. How do you think that guy would respond? I don't deserve this. I, I, I bring nothing to this. There's no way I could pay you back even for the cup of water, the bottle of water. Bill Gates would be like, I know. I have billions of dollars. I don't need you to pay me back. I just want to be generous with you. As you hear that, you're like, that's spiritual poverty. Like, that's how God is with us, right? Sometimes we come to him like the first guy in the story, and we're like, I'm just like God. And look at, look at this incredible collection. Look at, you know, our, our old newspaper collections can look very different depending on who we are, right? But we bring these before God, and we think they're so valuable. And God's like, you're valuing the wrong things. That's unimportant to me. What's important is that you come to me understanding, recognizing your spiritual poverty, that you bring absolutely nothing to the table before me. Like when we recognize how spiritually bankrupt we are, we go, I, I got nothing. Like God is completely different than me. If I'm honest and I look at my life and I look at my actions, they're not that much like God's. He's perfect. He's holy. He's righteous. Even the good things that I do, like think about some of the good things that you've done in your life. How many of those things are motivated by selfishness or recognition by others or earning money or so that other people will go, man, you're a really, that's, a, that's a really good guy. She's a really good girl. Right? What God wants, what he desires of us is that, and, it, and what he promises is that when we recognize that we are spiritual beggars, that we're spiritually bankrupt, he says, then you'll find happiness. Then you'll find blessing. And, and in fact, go, go ahead to that next slide there, Ruth. In fact, that's not the only thing that he promises. Oh, I'm sorry, uh, the Matthew 3 passage. There it is. So he says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So he says, not only, so blessed, not only receive blessing when we understand that we're spiritual beggars, but we also receive the kingdom of heaven. Like there's this beautiful promise that you and I get a chance to be a part of, to live under the rule of the king of kings and to be in relationship with the king of kings. Like that is an amazing, and all we have, our part is just go, I, got, I bring nothing to you, God. I am completely dependent on your generosity. That's being poor in spirit. Now, before I wrap up, let me say this. Go ahead to that next slide. So we just said, we said when I finally recognize that I'm a spiritual beggar, I find happiness, right? Like when I get it, when I come to him and I go, I deserve nothing good. I bring nothing to you. Then we find happiness. Let me, let me tell you what is also true. So maybe this morning you come here and that's the point that you're at. You're like, I need to do that. I've never done that. Maybe that's the point that you're at. Maybe you come here this morning and you're like, no, I know Jesus. I know that like, I, would, I am a Christian. I trust him. Then this other point is also very true. Go ahead, Ruth. 
and can, so when I finally recognize I'm a spiritual beggar, I find happiness, and continuing to be a spiritual beggar, I find happiness. Continuing to be a spiritual beggar, I find happiness. Maybe you're like me, and you're like, you need to be reminded that the way that we come to Jesus, the way that we first come to Jesus, is the same way that we continue to come to Jesus. Because here's, here's the temptation. Here's what we could do. We can first come to him like the tax collector, and we go, I got nothing, God. I finally get it. If I'm honest with myself, I finally get it. I bring nothing of value. I deserve nothing good of you, right? And we're humble, and we go, I bet, have mercy on me, right? And maybe at first, that's how we come to him. But then as time goes on, after we've said yes to Jesus, after we've been on the receiving end of his generosity for a while, we start to not act like spiritual beggars anymore. We start to forget. And we start to think, maybe, maybe we go, God, you know, look at all the good that I'm doing. I've been a Christian a long time. I came on a Saturday morning, a hot, balmy Saturday morning, and I spread 20 yards of mulch out there. Aren't you impressed with me, God? And all of a sudden, we go from, I bring nothing to you, to, look what I bring to you. Like, you're kind of lucky to have me, right? Or we step back, conversely, and maybe, maybe this is more often the case, we go, God, I know I should be doing more. I've been a Christian for a long time. Like, I know I should be, you know, praying more. I know I should be connected in deeper ways to those at church. I know I should be giving more. I know I should be doing more things. You must be disappointed in me. Which is the exact same thing. Both of those are Phariseeisms or legalism because we put the emphasis on us and what we're doing, right? And either we go, God, look at how much I'm doing. You must be so happy. Or we go, God, you must be so disappointed in me. Guys, the reality is the same. Maybe this morning you're sitting here and you're, you're the latter one there. You're the second one there. And you're like, I've been a Christian for a long time and I've wandered away from God. I've made bad decisions. Or, you know, I know that I should be doing more stuff than I am. God must be so disappointed in me. And, and it like pulls us away even more from him. As the reality is, you are a spiritual beggar still. You're spiritually bankrupt and God knows it. What God wants is us to admit that and come to him and say, I still need you. I am, I am spiritually destitute have mercy on me. And it's amazing when we do that how quickly he reassures us of how he loves us. It's amazing. Like you could walk out of here today and go get down on your knees and, and as soon as you hit the ground you go, God, I, I am so messed up. I know I should be better. I'm so messed up. Please have mercy on me. And just like that, God can reassure us of his love and his compassion. It's how he works. So, I, so I'll end with this. I'll end with the question again. Go ahead and throw that next question up on the screen. Do you yet recognize that you're a spiritual beggar before God? Whether for the first time, and you're like, I, di I, didn't, I didn't think about that. I thought I was better maybe than what I am. Or for the five millionth time, you're like, God, here I am again. I'm falling short yet again. Have mercy on me, a sinner. Do you yet recognize that you're a spiritual beggar before God? Not the spiritual working poor. I bring a little bit to you, God. Not much, but I bring a little bit. I bring somewhat to the table. Not that. But that we bring nothing and he still loves us. 
that we are completely dependent on the generous love of God. When we get that, there is a happiness, a blessedness that we receive that nothing else in this world can even compare to, even come close to comparing to. Do you yet recognize that you're a spiritual beggar?